Hey, before we get started, I want to remind you that Truce is listener-supported. If you want to be a part of this one-of-a-kind show that asks big questions in an approachable way, become a patron. For just $5 a month, you can help me tell big stories like this upcoming season on the history of fundamentalism. And you'll get access to bonus materials. That's all at patreon.com slash trucepodcast. That's patreon.com slash trucepodcast. You have given considerable study to the Bible, haven't you, Mr. Bryan? Yes, yeah, sir. I have tried to. Well, we all know you have. We are not going to dispute that at all. Uh, but you have written and published articles almost weekly, and sometimes have made interpretations of various things? I would not say interpretations, Mr. Darrow, but comments on the lesson. This reenactment is from what may be the most famous court case in United States history, at least the 1900s. What's known as the Scopes Trial or the Scopes Monkey Trial. A small town in Tennessee hosts a court case that turns into the OJ verdict of its day. Hundreds of people gathered to watch it live while millions more listened on the radio. But you have studied the question, of course. Of what? Interpretation of the Bible. The man asking the questions? Clarence Darrow, a controversial figure, perhaps the most renowned lawyer of the 1920s, a hardened, gruff atheist, a determinist. He's on the defense, representing a young schoolteacher accused of teaching evolution in a time and place where such a thing was illegal. The man on the witness stand is William Jennings Bryan. Bryan ran for president of the United States three times under the Democratic ticket, losing all of his attempts. Former member of the U.S. House of Representatives, former Secretary of State, and one of the people responsible for enacting the law in question, barring teachers in Tennessee from discussing evolution in the classroom. This was Rocky versus Apollo Creed, two of the most famous, maybe most infamous men in the country duking it out. Then you have made a general study of it. Yes, I have. I've studied the Bible for about 50 years, or sometime more than that. But, of course, I've studied it more as I've become older than when I was but a boy. You may know this story, the stakes, the ramifications. This event is taught in schools across the country. Your ideas about it are probably colored by your upbringing, your religion, your politics. And I don't care who you are, they're probably wrong. Let me tell it to you the wrong way first, how we normally hear it. The court case was over a week old already. Ryan and the prosecution had basically won. It was proven that the young teacher, John Scopes, taught evolution in the state of Tennessee. His own students testified to that fact, ratting him out. Scopes faced real jail time and fines for his crime, a young man imprisoned for science, a martyr for his cause. The whole thing was pretty much wrapped up when, in a surprise, spur-of-the-moment stroke of brilliance, Clarence Darrow, the godless big city lawyer, called the populist Brian to the stand. Once there, he grilled the old man about his religion. Darrow asked him, Do you claim that everything in the Bible should be literally interpreted? Brian was a fundamentalist, or at least the fundamentalists looked to him in this moment as their guy on the ground, fighting on behalf of God himself. To them, he was a man of God, 
Darrow, the atheist, wanted nothing more than to reveal Brian as a bigot, a sham, and a fool. I believe everything in the Bible should be accepted as it is given there. Some of the Bible is given illustratively. For instance, ye are the salt of the earth. I would not insist that man was actually salt, or that he had the flesh of salt, but it is used in the sense of salt as saving God's people. In this telling of the story, The False One, Darrow makes Brian out to be a sputtering idiot, a man stuck in the past, in superstition that no longer belonged to the industrialized world. He does so on national radio. Millions of people hear it live. As a result, teaching evolution goes mainstream in the schools, and fundamentalists like Brian become a dying breed. Thanks to this one performance, Darrow single-handedly brings down fundamentalism until it's revived in the 1970s, just in time for the moral majority, Jerry Falwell and Ronald Reagan. That's the story we've been told anyway, one of religion and superstition making way for modernist thought and enlightenment. Or, if you're from a Christian background, maybe you summarize it as a lone man standing up against godless theories that say, we emerged from apes. The truth, as is often the case, is far more complex. A lot of the popular ideas around this event are just plain wrong. John Scopes never faced jail time. Brian was not a bigot, at least not in the sense you're thinking. He wasn't even against teaching evolution in the schools. The Scopes trial, at its core, is barely about evolution at all. It was a ploy to bring tourism to Ray County, Tennessee. And it wasn't the death of fundamentalism. Instead, the pressure of this battle over Darwinism didn't extinguish the movement. It forced fundamentalism to evolve. Hello and welcome to Season 5 of Truths. This season, we're looking at the rise of Christian fundamentalism in the United States through the Scopes Monkey Trial and the life of William Jennings Bryan. God willing, there will be new episodes every two weeks, taking us deeper and deeper into the ideas and characters that got us to where we are today. For the next few months, we're going to explore the seemingly unrelated series of events that brought us to this testimony, this media event outside the Ray County Courthouse, where fundamentalism itself stood trial. At various times, if I'm doing my job right, you will find yourself empathizing with the fundamentalists, and then, in the next moment, questioning their course of action. With the help of experts, we will explore the battle over currency, the birth of fundamentalism and modernism, war and peace, the value of human life, and so much more. All of this to ask important questions. What is fundamentalism? How did one trial over the teaching of evolution define the movement? How is it that William Jennings Bryan went from an obscure congressman in Nebraska to one of the most famous people in his time, to change the Democratic Party from conservative to liberal, to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with presidents, set national policy for decades, and attract massive crowds everywhere he went, only to be remembered as a backwards bumpkin three decades later? And what does all this mean for us today? Fundamentalism is back in the public square and is shaping how non-Christians understand who Jesus is. That's why we need to understand it from the ground up, lest we let history make a monkey 
out of us. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause in the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. William Jennings Bryan. We're going to hear a lot about him in the next few months. Bryan was on the team of people who prosecuted John Scopes for supposedly teaching evolution in Tennessee. He had nicknames like The Commoner. Another was Mr. Fundamentalist. He got that nickname by becoming the figurehead for the fundamentalist movement for a brief time. And weirdly, there is some question as to whether or not he was a fundamentalist at all. Like I said, this story gets complicated. This season is going to take on some big terms, but don't worry, we're going to have some fun exploring these ideas. But first, we need to do the hard work of understanding key concepts. So, what is fundamentalism? George Marsden wrote the book Fundamentalism and American Culture. He's Professor Emeritus at Notre Dame and has taught at Calvin Theological Seminary. He defined fundamentalism in this way. Okay, I think you're already spacing out, so don't space out on me. Here we go. Fundamentalism is militantly anti-modernist evangelical Protestantism. I'll say that again. Militantly anti-modernist evangelical Protestantism. By the end of this season, you're going to know what all of those words mean. Now, that's the academic definition. For every long, rambling definition, there should be a smart aleck one, right? This is another way Marsden describes fundamentalism. Fundamentalist are evangelicals who are angry about something. Fundamentalists are evangelicals who are angry at something. That thing they are angry about changes from time to time. If a fundamentalist is an evangelical who's angry at something, we first have to ask, what is an evangelical? Historian David Bevington offered up a list of things that he says makes a person an evangelical. You might hear this referred to as Bebbington's quadrilateral. It goes like this. Evangelicals have a focus on evangelism. Hi there, do you know where you're going to go when you die? The Bible. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. Activism. We should stand up for this cause. And Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection. Those four things, roughly, make up an evangelical. Evangelism, the Bible, activism and the cross. It's, it's a type of Christianity that can be part of almost any Protestant tradition. So you have Presbyterian evangelicals. Most Baptists today? Methodists were for a long time the biggest evangelical church, or you have Churches of Christ. Some Anglican or Church of England believers are evangelical. So there's evangelicals of all sorts, but within those older traditions, usually gives it a lot more Vitality. That's why this is such a big question in our time. If you watch the news, you may hear the word evangelical in reference to any white American male Republican Christian. No. This thing crosses borders, nationalities, languages, skin color, gender, party lines, you name it. It is a broad term which makes it confusing. If you miss something, I'll have a lot of this in your show notes in case you need to review it later. Now that we have a rough idea of what an evangelical is, let's go back in time to try to figure out how this thing started. 
It's the 1730s. The Declaration of Independence is still decades away from being written. The United States is just a bunch of colonies. Spain, France, Britain all have claims to North America. The British colonies are super spread out. If you were to walk into a sanctuary back then, it would likely be tied to the Church of England. The church we just walked into is funded by tax dollars, not by passing a plate. And guess what? Not many people in the colonies go to church. They're spread out all over the countryside. Sorry, there may not be a church for them to attend on the frontier. In New England, the church attendance was a lot better. There, there was the congregational churches, which were the heirs to the Puritan tradition. It's a pretty strong uh, Reformed or Calvinist tradition. And it's within the Congregationalist tradition that things really get cooking. Congregationalists are Calvinists, which is another gigantic word. There are lots of pieces to Calvinism. The one that plays the biggest role in this season is the idea of predestination. Let's say I'm overcome with the realization that God is real and I should follow him. I'm now a Christian. A Calvinist would say that it's God who chose to save me. He called, excuse me, I should take this. And I answered, it's your nickel. Chris, this is God. I figured this out a long time ago. You are now saved. Thank you very much. Call again soon. In this poor example, it was God who dialed the number. God decided to pick me. In other words, I was predestined. God chooses who follows him and who goes to hell. It's among those people, the Calvinists, that things started to change. They had all sorts of revivals where people became Christians. But things were based on hierarchy. In the South, rich folks gave so much money that sermons were often about how poor people should submit to the rich. That's not in the Bible, by the way, but it's what got preached. That sense of hierarchy was about to change. Remember, people were really spread out. A lot of the colonists couldn't make it to church because they lived in the boonies. So guys got on their horses and rode all over the place spreading the gospel where there were no churches. These guys were called circuit riders. Repent, repent, for the day of the Lord is at hand. These guys weren't from a specific church. Their whole gig was saving souls. Instead of doing it the hierarchy way, they just shared the gospel. Some of them didn't have any formal training and the theology could be a little wishy-washy, but they sparked revivals as they went. Whew, that's a lot of information. Let's take a break to let our brains cool down a little bit. When we return, we'll meet some of the most famous revivalists of their day, and just maybe learn if they prefer a quiet dinner at home or long walks on the beach. You'll see what I mean. We'll be right back. Hey, Choose Podcast listeners. This season is all about the history of Christian fundamentalism up through the Scopes Trial. These first few episodes are about defining some terms like fundamentalism. I offer you the best ones I've found, but I'd like to hear your definition. So I'm hosting a contest. Tag at Truce Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook with your one to three sentence definition of Christian fundamentalism. 
Then I'll post them on Patreon, and supporters who give a little each month to help the show will vote for their favorites. The winner chosen by patrons will receive a copy of the book Fundamentalism and American Culture, one of the main sources for this season. Post your definition by February 18th, and I just may read it on the show. It's free to enter, but to vote for the best ones, visit patreon.com slash truthspodcast. And thanks for listening. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. The hierarchical way of thinking about Christianity was in vogue for a long time. You went to church and the priest or minister there guided you on your spiritual journey. But all of that was changing in the 1700s. Revivals started breaking out. And there were some really big names in the evangelism world, and folks traveled far and wide to hear them do their thing. I thought you'd like to get to know some of these guys a little better. It's time to play the game that has everyone buckling their shoes and bringing their King James Bible to church. It's Ask an Evangelist. One lucky lady is going to ask questions of our three evangelists. Jenny, thanks for being here. Hi, I'm Jenny. I like cooking, gardening, and children. She's a charmer. Let's meet today's contestants. In chair number one, from Northampton, Massachusetts, it's Jonathan Edwards. Hello, Miss Jennifer. Jonathan is a Calvinist. After preaching for five years, his congregation started to weep and laugh in church, experiencing visions. His congregation doubled in size, and now he's credited with kicking off the first great awakening. He's also a grandfather to an important person Hamilton fans might know. My grandson is Aaron Burr, the guy who shot Alexander Hamilton. Maybe on your first date, he can take you to the room where it happened. Even I can't get tickets to Hamilton. And as a slave owner, I'm not sure I'd like it anyhow. Our second evangelist is George Whitefield. I know it's a little confusing, but some people say George Whitfield, while others say Whitefield. We went with both. Whitefield was born in Britain. Ooh, tell me something about yourself. I am the most popular person in the empire next to the king, and I helped found Methodism. Finally, we have evangelist number three, Charles Finney. Born in New England, he is a Presbyterian minister and author. His revivals in upstate New York are a thing of legend. Welcome, Charles. Thanks. I'm a little anxious to be here. Hey, this is Chris interrupting for a second. Charles Finney came years after the other two guys. Edwards and Whitfield are credited with a major revival called the First Great Awakening. That happened before the American Revolution. 
Charles Finney ran his ministry after the revolution and was a major figure in the Second Great Awakening. Charles, you guys sound so similar. Aside from being the youngest in the group, what makes you special? Unlike my compatriots here, I am not a Calvinist. I believe that it is the duty of each man and each woman to choose God for themselves. It is the individual's choice to follow Jesus that makes them a Christian. That distinction is super important. Remember the fake phone conversation we had earlier? It's your nickel. Chris, this is God. I figured this out a long time ago. You are now saved. Wow, okay, thanks. I had no choice in the matter. That is Calvinism. God chooses who he's going to save, and his grace is irresistible. You can't help but go for it. Whitfield and Edwards were both Calvinists. Finney believed what is known as Arminianism. It's more like this. It's your nickel. Chris, this is God. I sent my son to die for your sins. Goodness. Do I want to be saved? This is my choice, after all. Okay, I'll follow you. Oscar-winning performance, no doubt. Under both systems, it is God who presents his grace. Calvinists would say that Christians have no choice but to accept that gift. It is irresistible. Under Arminianism... My free will plays a big role. I make a personal commitment to follow God. Or I can turn it down. That is what guys like Finney taught. It's what makes him stand out from Edwards and Whitfield. Some historians also point to this belief as the start of modern liberal theology, where the agency to choose who got saved went from God to humanity. Pretty soon, people were choosing which parts of the Bible to believe and which ones to ditch. We'll outline that in a future episode. Try to hold on to that distinction, though. Calvinism versus Arminianism. Jonathan Edwards, tell me about your preaching style. I like to read my sermons. Maybe you've heard my most famous one, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Here's a taste. The God that holds you over the pit of hell much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. I didn't know you were a fire and brimstone kind of guy. George Whitfield, what is your preaching style? As a trained actor, I deliver my sermons with a touch of the dramatic. Even Benjamin Franklin, not a Christian himself, has come to hear me. Charles Finney, how about a taste of a sermon? I endeavored to show that a change of heart is not that in which a sinner is passive, but in which he is active. That the change is not physical, but moral. That it is the sinner's own act. That it consists in changing his mind or disposition in regard to the supreme object of pursuit. There it is again, the Arminianism. The belief that the sinner's free will plays a vital role in salvation. I also like long walks on the beach. What a lovely sermon, Charles. So what's a girl to do if she responds to your message? Why, she or anyone can come forward and take a seat on the anxious bench down in front where they can receive prayer and counsel. That's another thing about Finney. He made conversion into a public event. This wasn't a sit-in-your-seat-and-make-a-decision-for-Christ kind of thing. 
Finney called converts to walk the aisles and sit in front. I did this myself some 29 years ago. Maybe you did too. Jenny has been a great sport. Tell her what she's won. Jenny gets to witness as the American church transitions from being about hierarchy to focusing on the individual. Thanks to preachers like this, the gospel spreads far and wide. Wait, don't I win a car? Nope, it's the early 1800s and they haven't been invented yet. That was ridiculous, but hopefully you can see the flow of history, the transition from a faith based on hierarchy to one that appeals to the masses. With the First and Second Great Awakenings, evangelicals were on the rise in the United States. Evangelicals focused on evangelism, the Bible, activism, and the cross. The ideas of these three men and so many other preachers spread far and wide. But, as I said, they didn't always agree with each other. Whitfield and Edwards were Calvinists, Finney was Arminian. The divide would soon play out, pitting conservative fundamentalists against theologically liberal modernists. That clash eventually led to a sweltering hot courtroom in Dayton, Tennessee in 1925, with William Jennings Bryan and Clarence Darrow duking it out over whether or not evolution could be taught in the schools. Together, we're going to track Christian fundamentalism from this point, the birth of evangelicalism, until the Scopes trial. Along the way, we're going to hear from some fascinating guests. Jacob Goldstein, the co-host of NPR's Planet Money, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Edward Larson, historians George Marsden and Joel Carpenter. We'll even travel to Tennessee to the place where it seemed that fundamentalism itself was on trial. For now, I want to reflect on that big question. Does God choose us, or do we choose God? Over the years, I've been in a lot of small group conversations about this very puzzle. And as we'll see, where you land can determine a lot about your life and your role in evangelism. Time and time again, though, I come back to something much more foundational. Whether you choose to follow Christ or he draws you to himself, I say, go for it. We're going to be talking about some really big decisions that Christians have made over the years. Some right and some wrong. Let's not leave these big questions at skepticism, though. Edwards, Finney, and Whitfield would want me to remind you that Jesus is the way. Whether it's God who spurs you or a choice of your own, I hope that you won't stop at skepticism. We'll be back with Truce in two more weeks when we talk about the end of the world. Subscribe so you get every new episode as it's released. Special thanks to George Marsden. He's the author of Fundamentalism and American Culture. You can find a complete list of sources on the website at trucepodcast.com. Follow me on social media at at trucepodcast. Thanks to my brother Nick Starin for his creative support and for coming up with the game show idea. Ray McDaniel and Carl Klemmer helped me to talk through the outline of this season. My voice performers were Jackie Hart, Nick Starin, BT Stevenson, and some of my podcaster friends, like Marcus Watson of Spiritual Life and Leadership, Eric Nevins of the Halfway There podcast, and Jerry Dugan of Beyond the Rut. Truce is listener-supported. If you want to hear more in-depth, entertaining storytelling, become a patron of the show. For just $5, you can get access to bonus extras not heard anywhere else. 
From people like hosts of the Holy Post podcast, Caitlin Chess and Sky Jatani, Jesus and John Wayne author Kristen Kobes Dumay, and more. Once you're there, you'll find a new bonus episode about our three evangelists today. Concerning some of their more controversial opinions, visit patreon.com slash trucepodcast for more information. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. Hey, everybody, just before we go, this is Chris again. Just want to remind you to post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook your definition of Christian fundamentalism by February 18th. You can find Truce at at Truce Podcast. It's free to enter, but if you'd like to be part of the voting process, visit patreon.com slash trucepodcast. I look forward to hearing what you have to say.